This is the Education Exchange with Paul Peterson. I am the senior editor at Education Next. Thank you for joining us. Our constitution is colorblind, just as John Marshall Harlan said in his powerful dissent to the 1896 Supreme Court decision, which found separate but equal public facilities to be a no violation of the Equal Opportunity Clause of the 14th Amendment. No, Sir Harlan, all citizens are equal before the law, regardless of their color our constitution is colorblind. But is this really true? When it comes to family law, is it true? Are black children and white children being treated equally before the law or are white children being given preferences not available to black ones? On that topic, Naomi Schaefer Riley, a senior fellow at the American Enterprise Institute has written a startling, spectacularly convincing book entitled, No Way to Treat a Child, How the Foster Care System, Family Courts, and Racial Activists Are Wrecking Young Lives. I'm pleased to have Naomi Schaefer Riley with me today on the Education Exchange. Thank you, Naomi, for joining me. Thanks for having me, Paul. It's great to be with you. Well, Naomi, you say that there is a differential treatment of black and white children by the foster care system. Is this really true? What's the evidence? Sure. Well, um, I think that there is sort of two different places in our child welfare system where you see uh, black children being treated differently. Um, both of which I think are illegal. Um, the first one is sort of at the front end of the system. And there's a growing chorus of voices who think that um, the disparate rates of uh, black children being taken into foster care are a sign of the system's structural racism. And so um, some of those folks have taken it upon themselves to actually um, remove black children from dangerous situations at a lower rate than their white peers. So for instance, there is a judge in New Orleans, Ernestine Gray, a widely celebrated family court judge, who literally, when I interviewed her, said to me, well, why aren't there more Vietnamese kids in my courtroom? Um, and she has actually taken it upon herself uh, to not remove black children uh, in almost any circumstance um, when uh, court cases are brought to her. Now, when you say remove children, what do you mean by removing children? Sure. So in our system, basically, um, reports come in, about 3 million reports come in of child abuse and neglect a year. Um, about 800,000 of those are substantiated, meaning that we have some evidence to believe that children were abused or neglected under those circumstances. Um, the other cases, the other 2.2 million cases, we don't know enough. It's not to say that those are false reports. Um, and then of those children, a, a very small percentage we deem to be in such danger um, that the government decides that they need to be removed into the foster care system. And there are about 440,000 children right now who are in the foster care system. Um, so and it's 440,000 in the foster care system. And you said how many of these cases are thought to be substantiated, reasonably, you know, um, no, no, all the all the cases of children who are in the foster care system, those have not only been substantiated, but um, but we have deemed them to be at such high risk that we have decided to remove them from their homes. And a court, you know, a judge would have to sign off on any of those removals and continue to monitor the case um, to see whether the parents have sufficiently rehabilitated that the child can safely go back to their family. About a quarter of the children in foster care have been permanently um, separated from their parents uh, and are available to be adopted. Um, but, but so that's so about 100,000 
would you say about a hundred? Yes, yes. Um, but but at the stage where we have to determine whether a child should be removed from their home because there is sufficient danger, um, judges in some cases like this one I mentioned are sort of taking it upon themselves to say, well, I just think too many black children are removed, so I'm not going to remove these children. And I've talked to local pediatricians and folks um, in the justice system there who are very concerned that these children are remaining in danger because this judge has a racial agenda. Well, um, is this so that, just one judge in, in, in New Orleans or is this more systematic? No, it's, it's more systematic. So you see this both in the case of the initial decision of child welfare agencies, uh, caseworkers who are being pressured to, um, to not remove children uh, because they feel that it is culturally insensitive and it is adding to these racial disparities. Um, and then you also see it in courtrooms as well. Um, and so for instance, like in, in New York City in the last few months, we've had three quite high profile child fatalities, uh, cases where children had been reported multiple times to the authorities um, that they were abused um, and we left those children in their homes, those children uh, were all African-American, they were left in their homes. Um, and while it is hard, the investigation hasn't been released yet, but it is easy to see how the pressure uh, to eliminate these racial disparities is at the heart of many of these decisions. So what is the racial disparity statistically? What is the chances that a black child will be in foster care as compared to a white child or an Asian child or a Hispanic child? So black children are much more likely to be removed to foster care. They're much more likely to be reported for maltreatment. They're much more likely to have their cases substantiated. Um, but I wanna warn people that that's not the only disparity we should be thinking about. Black children are actually twice as likely to suffer from maltreatment, either abuse or neglect as their peers. Um, and they're actually three times as likely to die from maltreatment as their white peers. Um, so the disparities do not start with with the foster care system, the disparities start with child maltreatment. Um, and there are a variety of reasons for those factors. It's true that child maltreatment is more common uh, when families are experiencing poverty, um, but I don't think poverty is actually what's driving a lot of these cases. Um, one thing that's really important to look at is family structure. Um, children who grow up uh, in a home with a mother and a non-relative male are about 11 times as likely to be abused as children who grew up with two married parents. Oh, let's and, say that again. I, I find that an important statistic. So it, it if is. you have both a father and a mother who are married to one another, yes. it's one-tenth or less than one-tenth is likely that you will be in this situation of uh, abuse or parent abuse. Yes. Um, as children who are growing up with a mother and a non-relative male. That's typically a mother's boyfriend. Sometimes it's a stepfather, sometimes it's a stepbrother, but most often this is referred to as the mother's boyfriend problem. So, so in other words, you know, creating stable marriages is sort of one of the core ideas if you really care about the welfare of children. Absolutely. Stable marriages are a protective factor for children. Um, and unfortunately, uh, stable marriages are not distributed evenly across our country in terms of racial groups. And Black children are much more likely 
to be growing up in a home with a single mother and a non-relative male. This is not, you know, to throw all single mothers under a bus or to suggest that there are not stepfathers out there who are doing a great job with their children, um, but we do have to understand what the risk factors are for children and family structure is definitely a big one. So you're saying that uh, family structure may be the underlying reason for this disparity, not because not anything that the foster system is doing yes. that is uh, differential across racial groups. Yes, absolutely. And, and I think just to answer your initial question about where else we're seeing these policy differences in the way we treat Black children, it's also happening at the other end with regard to placing children in foster homes um, or adoptive homes. So um, back in the 70s, the National Association of Black Social Workers came out with a statement that, they, that said, basically, we think it is never appropriate to place a Black child into a white family. They likened it to slavery. Um, and they actually prefer for Black children, this is still their position to be in the foster care system or even to be in a group home than to be placed with a white family. The courts are placing black children with white. Right. So, 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 so that, that is yeah. not the, that's not the law of the land. So in the 1990s, um, the Multi-Ethnic Placement Act was passed, and that actually forbids discrimination on the basis of race or ethnicity when placing a child for foster care or adoption. Um, and that was a really important piece of legislation. It meant that tens of thousands more Black children were able to find safe, stable, loving homes and were no longer languishing in the foster care system. Um, unfortunately, that law today is flouted on a regular basis. Um, you often hear judges and caseworkers talking about whether the skin color of a child matches the skin color of their potential caretaker or adoptive family. Um, and, you, and you see cases where Black children are staying in foster care much longer because the system is so reluctant to do any kind of transracial adoption or arrangement. Well, where does this idea come from? Why are, why are the people working in the, in the field uh, not being instructed in what the law is, but coming up with some alternative idea of what the rules for placement must be? Well, the most obvious answer is the universities, of course. Um, <laughs> a lot of these caseworkers um, are trained uh, much more in the field of cultural sensitivity and racial sensitivity than they are in things like statistics, risk factors, and what are the real dangers to children. Um, and they have been taught to believe that transracial adoption is you know, the most traumatic thing you could possibly do to a child in many ways. Um, and I, I really think it's important to talk about this because the data is not there to support that idea. Um, there was a great book that came out a few years ago called Saving International Adoption. It was written by two pretty liberal economists at Grinnell College, and they actually looked at all of the longitudinal studies on adoption, um, both transracial and same race. Um, and what they found is that of course, adoption is always a traumatic event. You know, something terrible has to have happened for a child to be placed with another family. But there is actually no difference in outcomes between Black children who are placed with white families and Black children who are placed with Black families. So there is this myth that somehow the transracial element is responsible for any difficulty that the child has after all. But in fact, the data don't, don't really bear that out. Well, you know, in other aspects of our society, we are tolerating 
interracial marriages to an extent that was not anywhere near when I was a, a young boy. I, that was a very unusual event. It, 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 it captured your attention. Now, if it doesn't capture your attention, you see it as just pretty much as a matter of course, don't we have interracial marriages in abundance? Absolutely. And I think most Americans are quite tolerant of the idea of interracial families. And many Americans would be shocked to find out that these are the ideologies that are governing our child welfare system. Because most Americans, I think, would say the most important thing for a child is to be raised in a safe, stable, and loving home. And that skin color is not the main factor that we should be looking at. Um, but the child welfare agencies sort of often operate independent of. Um, oversight from the public. It's not something that people think a lot about unless the system touches them in some particular way. Um, what goes on in family courts, um, you know, the people who are, for instance, foster parents, the number of times that they refer to family court as like a kangaroo court is just shocking. Um, it does just doesn't seem to follow particular rules the way other courtrooms have to. Well, I had a friend uh, when I lived in Washington, D.C. I haven't seen him recently, but he had he was uh, the father of a, a black child. He was white. And the mother uh, who was in California uh, wanted the child back. The, uh, some um, attorneys for a law firm helped you know, with a suit that demanded be, uh, the child be returned to the mother, uh, despite the fact this adoption had taken place. And it was an interracial adoption, and he needed to be back in his own community. Mm -hmm. uh, and that case went on for endlessly yeah it just could and so that's sort of this kangaroo court kind of thing because if, if yeah. it was being considered in washington it would decide one thing if a case was being decided in california it would be decided another way and it would go back and forth across the country and also the endlessness of the cases is something else that's very typical of family court um and and these are cases which are really unfortunate i mean that are not um operating on the timelines of children uh and they're instead operating on the timelines of adults you know if you're dealing with a case where you have a a three-year-old and you say you know we're going to have our next hearing in six months that's an enormous amount of that child's life that you are just frittering away with this sort of bureaucracy um and i think even more so now than when we passed certain laws in the 1990s, we know a lot about child's brain development and how important particularly it is at those young stages, like zero to three, um, for them to be able to form secure attachments um, and to be able to depend on an adult who will meet all of their physical and psychological and emotional needs. Uh, but a lot of these courts just sort of put all the, put all those decision-making uh, off. And, and one of the reasons that they do that, and this is related to the race issue as well, one of the reasons they do that is that they see the adults as victims. They see the adults as victims of poverty or substance abuse um, or discrimination. And so the system, even for abusive parents, even for parents who have shown almost no interest in raising their children, um, the system always wants to give them another chance. So this is fascinating. You mentioned in your book that Annie Casey Foundation is a foundation that has sponsored a lot of research and a lot of uh, policy recommendations and exercised an enormous amount of influence within this sphere. Can you discuss where what their philosophy is and why they hold this philosophy? Sure. Um, well, so there are sort of two things that are work here. The, the first thing is uh, any Casey Foundation and the related organization called Casey Family Programs 
are both very attached to the idea of, of family preservation and family reunification. And obviously to most people, you know, it sounds like common sense for a child to be with their family. We all want children to be with their family. Um, but these are cases which are a little bit different. They're cases where parents have actually abused or really severely neglected their children, many times the result of substance abuse or mental illness. Um, and what happens is when we take a child out of their home in these extenuating circumstances, um, the child welfare agencies, you know, really backed by the Casey Foundation and, and kind of other, uh, you know, kind of liberal bastions like universities, um, the first question that we ask is, um, how can we get this family back together? And I encourage people to compare it to the way we view domestic violence. Uh, it'd be hard to imagine that uh, the police would come, uh, you know, find out that a husband or boyfriend is beating his wife or girlfriend and have the first question be, hey, how can we get you guys back together? Um, but that is exactly the philosophy that we take with child welfare. And again, it has to do with meeting the needs and desires of adults, uh, not children. And so, but Casey Foundation is, and, and Casey Family Programs are in this interesting position because child welfare is um, somewhat underfunded um, and it's not um, the source of a lot of, it doesn't have a lot of resources. Um, Casey has really been able to come in and sort of offer itself as a partner to state agencies and say, oh, let us do research with you and let us train your workers. And um, there are even uh, programs uh, whereby Casey is actually paying for part of a federal government employee's salary um, to work part-time for Casey and part-time for the federal government. Um, so there's a really an enormous amount of influence that they are able to exercise in this field because they can throw a lot of money around. Um, and I think that that's really having an outsized influence on these agencies. Well, you mentioned that they would like to place a child with the next of kin, if not with the parent uh, himself mm -hmm. or herself. Uh, what's, um, is this, that sort of makes sense to me. Um, you know, I can think of my own father uh, took his family, uh, took in a cousin, even though they was they were already a very large family because the brother of the, you know, of the parent had died, and so this orphan they took into their family and raised them right. of their own. Isn't that what we would want? Right, and I think in most cases, again, that's exactly what you'd want, and that's what most people that you know would have. So the difference with these families um, when we're talking about kinship care is first that um, uh, the government has had to intervene first. So you have to have been in a situation where say, you know, you're the aunt of this child or you're the grandmother of this child. And it's possible that you knew something terribly wrong was going on, but you did not volunteer to take this child in or you did not try to take this child in. Um, and the you waited for sort of the government to say, okay, now we are getting to the point where we have to remove this child. Now, who are we gonna place that child with? So already I think there's a different category of people sometimes who are involved in kinship care. The second thing, of course, is that many of the dysfunctions that seem to affect the immediate family also affect the extended family. And this is particularly true of substance abuse. Um, it is not uncommon to find that the grandmother or the aunt or other folks um, are actually engaged in some of the same kinds of activities that have led the child to be removed from, from the first place. But the, the real objection, I think, um, is just that we have lower standards 
for what constitutes an appropriate placement when it comes to kinship care. Um, one of the things that is always, always surprises people is that in many cases, the relatives who are taking this child in, again, after the government has intervened, um, don't even have to pass a basic background check. Um, and, I, and I cite the study of the, uh, the story of Hillbilly Elegy. Many people have read J.D. Vance's memoir, and that's sort of something people point to as an example of the success of kinship care. He's taken in by his grandmother. He goes on to the Marines and Yale and a political career. Um, after his mother you know, has abused and neglected him, the grandmother is kind of this savior figure. Um, the grandmother, though, was in an abusive marriage herself and at one point, you know, doused her husband in gasoline and set him on fire. And so I wonder whether, you know, people really would think, you know, absent this later story, whether that's an appropriate placement for a child. Well, it's hard to know. Uh, you never know what's going to happen. Some people can overcome the most unbelievable obstacles and other people with the greatest uh, loving care can turn out to be a huge challenge for their parents. So it's, you know, raising children. <laughs> Not easy. Cross your fingers and hope for the best often. Yeah, absolutely. Because <laughs> I'm sure you know. <laughs> uh, yeah. So, but uh, you also point out that there's hardly any Asian children. You mentioned the Vietnamese example and, and the judge and so forth. So why is it that we have so few Asians in the foster care system? I do think, again, this goes back to family structure in a lot of ways. And it's also, to me, more evidence that poverty is not what is driving these numbers. A lot of people think that we could solve our child welfare problem um, if we only gave people more food stamps and housing vouchers um, and other kinds of material supports. Um, but there are a lot of poor Asian families in this country, um, and they do not have the abuse and neglect, the child maltreatment problems that we're talking about. And I think one of the reasons that you see that is that they don't have some of not only the family structure dysfunctions, um, but they also don't have some of the problems with substance abuse that other families have. Um, you know, if you look at the numbers, about 40% of the cases where a child has been removed from their home, substance abuse has been an issue, um, uh, alcohol abuse, drug abuse, addiction, or, um, or mental illness, which is often co-occurring with those other problems. Um, but if you talk to experts in the field, they'll tell you probably more than 80% of the cases involve substance abuse on some levels. And, and I, and I want to sort of mention to your listeners, it may seem obvious, but why substance abuse is such a problem in child maltreatment, um, because many people say, oh, you know, there's just a case of neglect. It's not really, you know, a, an actual physical abuse that's going on. But especially for very young children, you know, parental inattention can be fatal. Um, and so, you know, you have, uh, whether it's babies who need to be, you know, fed and changed and held around the clock um, or monitored because they have, you know, particular medical condition or even just a cold. Um, and then you move into what I call the mobile but totally irrational stage of childhood uh, where kids are trying to, you know, touch a hot stove or swallow Legos or run out the front door into traffic. Um, and that requires a extraordinary level of parental attention that challenges even sober parents in many cases. Um, and so addiction for those families can really um, have very severe consequences. And that is one of the reasons why uh, we want to take children out of those homes when we see that risk there. So you say that family structure is really critical. Uh, what does 
what policy do you think the government can pursue that can do something to sustain families, uh, you know, healthy families with husbands and wives supporting mm -hmm. one another? Uh, is it can it do anything, or it, you know, or does it just have to sort of you know hope that society can solve this problem on its own? Well, um, I mean, uh, greater minds than mine have, have been thinking about this problem for a long time. Um, you know, obviously there's sort of the um, question of whether the upper classes could start preaching what they practice. I think that would be a great step forward to just talk about openly how great marriage is for children and how it is a protective factor um, in terms of children's safety, in terms of their ability to graduate from, from high school, in terms of a family's income in all these different ways. Um, so just sort of, you know, being open with people about why marriage is so important for children. Um, you know, are there, are there policies that we could we could use in order to encourage more marriage. I mean, I think most most of the people I respect would say, you know, there are policies that we have put in place that actually discourage marriage, um, and uh, you know, sort of government subsidies and uh, you know different forms of of welfare have actually made it less likely that families uh, that that men and women would marry and have children inside of marriage. Um, so you know, those are those are all policies that are that are really important. You know. In terms of the child welfare system, you know, that that horse has kind of already left the barn. It's very difficult to go back. A lot of people want to talk about prevention programs, um, but those programs are really they're not exactly what we mean by prevention because there are programs for families that are already being reported for some problem. Um, there are programs where, um, you know, maybe we found that um, a mother is about to go home with a baby and we're sending a visiting nurse to kind of try to teach her uh, about, you know, how to parent properly. So that's probably as close as we come to prevention on that end. Uh, but people don't think about encouraging marriage as a kind of child abuse prevention technique, but they should. Well, this topic of childcare is a major topic as part of the current discussion over the uh, proposals going through Congress that are going to uh, uh, provide uh, support for uh, families with children and provide preschool. Um, are, these, are these programs a step forward? Do you think this is uh, maybe what we need in order to uh, at least move in the right direction? Um, I think that there's evidence that um, families who are at high risk, um, you know, could definitely use uh, some help with childcare. Um, you know, as, as much as I'm in favor of a mother, you know, bonding with her child, it is true that some of these families where the mothers um, do suffer from mental illness problems or addiction problems, or really, you know, many of them have even been raised in the foster care system themselves, making sure that that child spends at least part of their day being exposed to you know, responsible adults um, who are properly caring for them and maybe trying to teach the mother how to care for them, I think is very important. Um, I would suggest that the way we're talking about childcare subsidies now um, is not really with a focus on those families and will probably end up just being um, you know, very watered down for the families that need kind of real intervention. Um, the, the, the income caps on some of these child care subsidy programs suggest that this is really more of a program for middle class Americans than it is for um, Americans who are most vulnerable and whose children are most vulnerable.
Well, this is a, a fascinating story and a disturbing story. Thank you for sharing it, uh, Naomi. Uh, it's been uh, very informative to have had this conversation with you. Thank you. I appreciate talking about it. I have been speaking with Naomi Schaefer-Riley, a senior fellow at the American Enterprise Institute. She has just released a book entitled No Way to Treat a Child, How the Foster Care System, Family Courts, and Racial Activists are Wrecking Young Lives. I am Paul Peterson. This is the Education Exchange. Please join me every Monday at noon when our weekly podcast is released on the Education Next website.